right, Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders on vacation this week from work, which is great because I can catch up on some things, including emails and podcasts. So one of the ones I want to do today is basically a Q&A where I answer some questions that people have thrown out on either Facebook or my blog or on YouTube. And some of these, unfortunately, are just not long enough to support an entire podcast by themselves. So what happens is I collect a few of them on a notebook where I write them down. And once I get enough that I think I can make a podcast out of them, we'll do it that way. Also, I put a question up on Facebook or a post up on Facebook soliciting any questions. So far, there's been nothing, but I understand that unfortunately, everybody's probably at work right now, so I'm not going to get a huge feedback on that. But in the future, my goal is to do one of these Q&As live. Still trying to figure out the logistics of it, but in theory, it would be neat to kind of get a camera up here. Maybe. I, I don't like being on film, honestly. I know everybody finds that shocking, but the YouTube thing, it's just a matter of necessity. I kind of like the podcast because I don't have to be on camera, but we'll see. Maybe get me on camera and answer some questions live and then post it. I think that would be a lot of fun. I'm just, again, trying to figure out how it's all going to work out. So that'll probably be during June, late June. Expect something because I will be on my summer break, which will afford me all the time I need to set this up. Plus, it's a little more quiet around that time because the kids are out playing and dogs aren't all in here going nuts. So anyway, moving ahead, first topic we're going to talk about is... The tarantula ICUs, I get asked about these a lot, and I just had kind of a humorous exchange with Tanya from Fear Not Tarantulas because I've kind of made known my my beliefs on the ICUs. And just to explain what they are, back in the day when folks would have a tarantula that something would be wrong with it, people would immediately, immediately say that you need to stick it in an ICU. And what the ICU basically consists of is a plastic container with some moist towel in it or a kitchen roll if you're in the U.K., and you put the tarantula in this, you put the cover on, you stick it in a warm corner, heat is another thing, and then it miraculously raises the tarantula from the dead. All right, that's being just mean, but honestly, the idea is that these tarantula ICUs are good for tarantulas that are in bad shape. Now, again, I don't, I'm not going to have this whole thing be bashing ICUs because I do think there are some instances where they work. And I'm going to call myself out. Recently, I had a situation with Theraphosa blondi or blondi that uh, wasn't doing well. And against my normal beliefs, I did try to stick it in a in kind of an ICU. I was it was a last ditch effort. So I totally get when folks have a sick tarantula why this idea appeals to them and why they try it. Because as I've discussed in YouTube videos and in my blog, these are not the most expressive creatures. When my dogs are sick, it's it's pretty obvious they're mopey, they're lethargic, they might be throwing up, they might have diarrhea. I can't believe we just went there and here, but there's there's signs that something's wrong. With tarantulas, they pretty much just, you know, puttering along, they seem fine, and next thing you know what, they're not fine. And we have very limited time and very limited ability to honestly diagnose what is wrong with them. So what happened was back in the day, and I think this came from the Tarantula Keeper's Guide, the idea of putting a tarantula in an ICU when it's sick I will tell you an instance where I think it's it can work, and again, this a lot of times will point to keeper neglect, so this is an easily remedied condition, a dehydrated tarantula. I've heard instances with tarantulas, things have dried up, the heat's gone up in a room, or I believe I heard one instance where basically it got very, very hot one day, the room temperature went up, the water dish had evaporated, 
and the tarantula was found in a death curl. And in this instance, it makes sense to put it in an environment that's moister. But more importantly, those moist paper towels give them a chance to drink. And there have been instances where people have found the things curled up in dry enclosures. They drop them in one of these ICUs. And miraculously, the animal comes to life, back to life. Well, I use the term miraculously kind of tongue-in-cheek because if you think about it, if you're out wandering around in a desert, it's super hot, you're dehydrated, you're about to die, and somebody comes along and puts you in a place where there's all the water you can drink, guess what? You're probably going to improve to a point. So this is a spot where I think they work very well. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of spots where I think not only are they not going to work, but you're actually causing the spider more stress by putting them in one. And let me give an example. Recently, I had somebody contact me. They had a G. porteri, G. rosea, that was an older adult, and they came home to find it in kind of a bad spot. Not a full death curl, but was definitely lethargic and not doing well. So the young lady took the thing I was surprised pet, loves this animal, and took it out and put it in a Tupperware dish with a bunch of moist, warm, moist paper towels, sprayed the crap out of the inside of the enclosure, and dropped her there. The thing was dead in probably two days. And unfortunately, in this instance, this is a pet, uh, a species that actually abhors moisture. Now, they will drink, and I think this is something that we're going to touch on in a moment, the difference between an ICU and putting them in something that gives them an opportunity to easily access water. They can drink. I've seen my Proteri drink more than probably any other species, and this is just in the last couple years or so. So it's important to recognize that they can become dehydrated in theory, although it's not, I don't think if you provide them with water dishes and pray, it's not particularly common. But in some instances, yes, if you're pretty sure that it's dehydrated, then putting it in this container may work. Unfortunately, in this particular incident, she plucked the poor spider out of its cage, dropped it in this super humid enclosure and environment with moisture, and I don't know if anybody's seen their porteries when the humidity goes up. We get humidity in the 90s here in the summer, it gets really hot, and my porteri is just crawling up the sides of the enclosure in discomfort. It's something you can notice. A lot of species, when it gets super hot, will do it. Mine gets really antsy when it's humid. I do not believe they like the humid environment, which makes it more appalling that for years, you know, Petco and pet stores would tell you you have to spray them down all the time. That's ridiculous. So this would be a situation in which leaving the tarantula in its regular enclosure would probably be smarter. I also have heard situations with tarantulas like um, C. cyaneopubicans, where that's a species that is known to like it nice and bone dry, and people have seen they're sick. Again, sticking it in an environment where you're purposely raising the moisture levels and humidity inside the environment is probably not a good idea. What is a good idea is putting it in an environment where it can get to water well. So possibly having something where there's um, wet paper towels, putting on the wet paper towels, putting on a little puddle on the bottom so that it can drink in the puddle. And keep in mind, their mouth parts, they will not drown. It's not like you and I, if you stick our heads in water, we drown. Their book lungs are where they breathe from. Those are in the back of the abdomen. So as long as those are kept dry and the mouth parts are able to get water, that's a good situation. I've had some people that flip the tarantula over and use a dropper to put water in the mouth parts. I've done this myself before. And in one instance, it actually worked very well and it refreshed the spider a bit and granted it ended up dying in the end, but I did see somewhat of improvement. That's something else. So for an example, with a, a species like a GBB or a P. murinus or the OBT or a G. rosea or any species that's commonly believed to need 
a an arid environment, then the best bet would be to put it in something with lots of ventilation. You see these ICUs, and they're usually all steamed up and covered in moisture. You want to put it in something that it can still breathe and not be trapped in a superhuman environment because that's not good for the tarantula. That's not going to help them any. As a matter of fact, it's going to stress them out more and possibly exacerbate things. But putting them in something where they are able to get their mouth parts into water, whether it be a shallow water dish. I've seen some people put a shallow water dish in a container with some paper towels just to like put something on the bottom of the enclosure a little bottle cap and put their mouth parts in the bottle cap or flip them over if they're incredibly lethargic. Just be careful, obviously, because some species can appear to be very lethargic but can still bite and twist around in your hand. But to flip them over and use an eyedropper or pipette or pipette, whatever you pronounce it, to put some water in their mouth parts would make more sense. But putting some of these animals, pulling some of these arid species out, sticking them in, and if you see pictures of them, they are ridiculously moist because back then the idea was the moister the better, and that's only true for some species. If, however, it was an Asian species, maybe they have a C. lividus that is not looking really well and might be dehydrated, then that situation it would probably do quite well in. Would I do this with an avicularia species, a young one, especially a young one? Absolutely not. It would probably kill it immediately. So things to think about. It kind of reminds me, we joke at my school, I teach at a high school, and the school nurses are, are fantastically talented people, but because of certain restrictions about what they can and can't do for kids. The running joke is that if you go to the school nurse, no matter what your injury, the most you're going to get is a Band-Aid, a bag of ice, or some graham crackers. And it's kind of been a running joke with us that it's just the one-size-fits-all because they can only do so much legally to help kids. So kids will go in with a headache. They will come back out with graham crackers. I don't know. Maybe they're hungry or something. Um, the kids will go in with, you know, a cut on their arm it's it's band-aid um kids will go in with you know they we had kids that have you know upset stomachs they lay down a little bit and they give them some ice sometimes and i'm kind of over exaggerating but it's been kind of a running joke that there's only so much they can do this is kind of like what i see the icus as we're not sure what's wrong with them we're kind of in a situation where we have to guess what's wrong we have limited ways to treat them so the be all and end all is well my tarantula is sick it's not doing well there's obviously something wrong with it let's drop it into a container with a bunch of moisture and maybe it'll fix it and again i get why people do it i'm calling myself out i just did this recently granted it was the enclosure had a lot of airflow i did put it in a warm corner and the whole point was to try to get the tarantula to drink i basically put its mouth parts in water but we have to figure in some instances this isn't not only it's not only not going to help but it's going to exacerbate the issue so i think before we use icus i do believe again i just want to restate there are instances where they help we want to do our best as keepers to try to figure out what might be causing the situation and is this a situation in which an icu would help if it's a situation where we don't believe the the animal has had access to water, it's got a moist enclosure, it's nothing to do with that, then plucking it out and sticking it on some moist paper towels in a corner of your room probably isn't going to do anything but basically stress it out even more, possibly stress it out even more before it finally dies. So again, I'm not bashing the ICUs. I do think they have their uses, but I also think they tend to become the last ditch effort to help our tarantulas when we don't know what's wrong with them. And I think in some of these instances, we actually do more harm than good dropping them in one of these. So I will do something a little different for this one. And I want to hear from other people that have used them before. Have you had success with them? I mean, I usually 
post these up on Facebook and kind of open it up for comments and whatnot. And I'd be curious to hear if anybody's had any experience with them and if they have worked. I personally have not. I don't think I've ever had one that I've put into an ICU. And most of these were earlier in the hobby where I'd have like a... I had a sling that was not doing well and I put it in one. There hasn't been many instances where I've used one, but I've yet to have one miraculously revive. The instances where I've seen where they actually have had ones revive are usually ones where the tarantula was probably dehydrated to begin with. So what do you guys think? Have you used them before? Do you like them? Personally, I think it just makes sense to put them, if you think they're dehydrated, they can use some water, put them in a situation where they can access water with their mouth parts, but it doesn't necessarily have to be taken out of the enclosure and put into something that's super moist and humid. And furthermore, obviously heat it can be something we want to think about as well, adding a little bit extra heat. So sticking them in a corner, and again, this could be just in their regular enclosure, but putting them in a warmer corner of the room if you feel that heat may be an issue could also help. But that's about it. I think a lot of it with the tarantula ICUs is about recognizing what the issue might be and, and trying to react in an appropriate manner. So if you think it's something that it may benefit from more moisture, then some variation of an ICU may work. If you think there's something wrong with the actual enclosure itself, you think there's mites, there's mold, there's something, then taking the tarantula out and putting it in a clean environment also might work. But in many instances, I think just keeping the spider in its own enclosure and putting it in a warmer corner and making sure it can drink is probably enough. So again, I just want to thank Samantha Miller for giving me this idea. She actually posted a question on my Facebook page that I missed for several weeks, unfortunately. So I apologize, Samantha, but this is a great question. Thanks so much for posing it. This next one was inspired by an email I just got from a B Cruise. And I don't believe I've discussed this before, sadly. I think I might have discussed it in my sling videos and possibly my sling blog post or article about sling keeping. But one of the questions asked was, do you think somebody new to the hobby should get a small sling or tiny sling, meaning something around, you know, a quarter inch or less. And I think this is an excellent question, and I think this could probably turn into, when we start talking about slings, and I'd love to do another whole thing on slings later on in the podcast, but what is a good size to start off with? And my answer to him and my answer to anybody that usually asks is, I do think keeping slings can be incredibly rewarding. I also think that most people, if they shop well and get a hardier species for a sling with a good beginner species, should have no issues keeping their sling alive and raising it. I think the problem is slings tend to freak people out because they're babies. They're told that they aren't as resilient or they're much more susceptible to husbandry mistakes than their older counterparts, and that's in the back of people's minds when they get them. So I think there naturally comes, even somebody that's going to take perfect care of them, there's naturally going to be a bit more stress involved with keeping them because they're worried about things they've heard. They've been told many times that slings can be difficult. It's one of the reasons I did the sling guides was to try to dispel some of the ideas about slings and keeping slings. However, with all of that said, I do think that somebody just getting into the hobby that hasn't had any experience would probably be better off if they're going to start with a sling. Now, we can have a whole argument, we can say this for another time, about whether people new to the hobby should start with slings in the first place. I think under the right conditions, they definitely could, but we'll leave that one for later. But I think if they do start with slings, let's just say they're starting with a sling, the idea would be to start with something a little larger and more established. And I usually go by around an inch or so. 
I, that's usually the size I recommend people. You can find some one somewhere that's an inch. That's the way to go. Uh, three quarters of an inch will also work. But you want something that you're going to be able to easily see because when you talk about the teeny tiny slings, when we say they're small, you picture a quarter inch and you think of a pretty – you picture the spider. You, you're probably picturing it larger than it actually is. I know when I got my first quarter-inch sling, or I think mine was actually supposed to be a third of an inch, it was a Gramostola Polkrapies, and I was expecting something, I, I don't know, let's just say when I opened it up, it was a heck of a lot smaller than I had been picturing. It was very difficult to see. Even the grains of substrate, this is back when I was using cocoa fiber, were almost larger than the spider in some cases, so it made it a little trickier to keep it. So I normally, when people are asking about the, the teeny tiny slings, I normally try to steer them away from the teeny tiny slings only because they can be, again, more difficult to see. They're a little trickier, I think, to keep alive because they're younger. They haven't developed that waxy coating that protects them, so they're very susceptible to dehydration. And it can be a pain in the patookas trying to feed them or even worse, trying to tell if they're feeding. And what I mean by that is generally if you've got something that size, unless you're doing the flightless fruit flies, which I personally can't stand, although I'm going to have to use them pretty soon because I have my P. regius babies coming, um, they're very tiny and they don't really make a prey item that small. If you get pinhead crickets, even some cases, those are too large. So what you end up having to do is usually I encourage people to use pre-killed, find something, a cricket leg, cut it up. Mealworms look, work great. You get small mealworms worms you can keep the adults refrigerated so they will stay so you go out you buy one uh, little container of mealworms can last you forever for a sling and cut it into little pieces and you drop the piece in now the problem is i get emails all the time hey tom i have this teeny tiny sling i keep dropping pieces in but i can't tell if it's eating and that can be frustrating that's a, a little extra aggravation somebody brand new to the hobby doesn't need and having raised a lot of spiders kept a lot of the species that fast and a lot of species that take forever to grow that can be very discouraging because generally speaking, when people get teeny tiny slings, they're not, a lot of times when they're getting new to the hobby, they're not thinking, oh my God, this is such a cute little animal, I can't raise it up. It's usually, I wanted an adult, I couldn't find an adult, so I'm going to go with this one and try to grow it up as fast as possible. And I don't blame them. I can remember getting my first slings. One of the first ones was a GBB, a C, uh, Cyaneo pubicens, and I looked at this thing, I thought it looked incredibly cool, but my whole thought was, I can't wait till it has its adult colors. So that's something to keep in mind. So now this individual has purchased the sling, it's teeny tiny, they're freaking out because it's so small, and then what ends up happening a lot of times is they overcare for it. So they read that, oh my god, these things can dehydrate very, very quickly, so next thing you know it, they're spraying the heck out of the inside of the enclosure to the point where the substrate is actually too moist, and the inside of the enclosure is too stuffy. They're feeding it, but they can't tell if it's eating or not, so they keep putting more prey in, and it just becomes a bit of a debacle and can become very, very stressful and turn people off to the hobby. I had an email from someone not that long ago that was talking about they were just getting back into the hobby, and the reason they had left the hobby originally is because several years ago they had purchased some slings, and things didn't go particularly well. They ended up losing two of the slings, I believe, couldn't figure out what was wrong with them, and then ended up giving the other two away. They said it just became too stressful, and all they were doing is worrying that they were going to kill the spider, and that's no way to enter a hobby, especially one with animals. You don't want to be in constant fear that you're going to do something wrong and kill something. You don't want to be living the whole time thinking, oh my gosh, this thing's never going to be an adult. Why won't it eat? What's going on? That's just more stress than is needed, and they're not particularly keeping slings. It's fairly simple to keep them 
them alive and their husbandry is very simple and it doesn't necessarily prepare you for the big ones. So here are my thoughts on it. For most people just getting into the hobby, if you can find a juvenile, start there. I think juveniles are great. You're allowed to, you know, you get some time to actually grow the spider and grow with the spider. Or look for larger slings. I would say three quarter of an inch minimum. An inch is perfect. Inch and three, uh, inch and a quarter or so even better. Those are well established slings. They've been eating. They most likely, depending on the species, have molted several times, and you should have a good experience with them. Also, I found that some of the Brachypelma and Afonapelma species and Gramostola species grow incredibly slow when they are at the quarter inch mark or below. These are one of the, that, this is the period where they take forever to grow, and that can be incredibly stressful. I had two G poker peas that were about three quarters of an inch or a third of an inch take six months off eating during the winter. I assume both of them were dead and I've shared the story many, many times. Had those been my first two tarantulas, I probably would not have gotten it as into the hobby as I did because they freaked me out. I just assumed they were dead. I didn't know what to do with them at the time. And I had raised a few at this point. I just I've never seen anything grow so slowly. I also had a G Porteri sling that is now, I believe I've had her for four years and she's about an inch, maybe an inch and a quarter. So that's how little growth she got. So people that are buying a lot of the beginner species, especially, you know, the Gramostola, Brachypelmas, Afonapelmas, are not only getting a very small spider, they're also going to get a very small spider that is probably going to stay very small for a very long time. That can be discouraging. So when looking for these species, I know it can be tough, and I know sometimes we can't get the ones we want, and sometimes you just got to ask yourself, like in the instance of the Gramostola pulchras that are out there, is it something you're going to want later on? Then you may want to take the chance and buy a small one because you're not going to be able to find it. But in most cases, start a little bit larger with the slings. Try to stay away from those teeny tiny ones until you have some experience and you have some quite frankly, other tarantulas to worry about so you don't spend all your time worrying about them. And finally, there's one more thing I want to address this episode, and it's come up recently, is shipping and what constitutes legal shipping and what constitutes illegal shipping. And I'm going to need to make it very clear in this one that if you ship any inverts or basically tarantulas using the United States Postal Service, that is considered illegal. That is a federal crime. Now, I'm sure a lot of people out there are freaking out right now, so hear me out before you totally freak out about it. Uh, here's the deal. The law basically says that you can't transport poisonous arachnids through the U.S. Post Service, Postal Service. Now, we can all basically banter about the fact and argue the fact that poisonous means it has to be ingested and these animals are venomous, but it doesn't matter. This has been pushed before. Right now, the federal government doesn't consider tarantulas to be venomous. However, as far as U.S. Postal Service is concerned, they are venomous animals and they cannot be shipped legally. Now, Here's where things get interesting. Obviously, a lot of people out there right now are probably scratching their heads and going, but wait a minute, I can think of some instances where I've bought ones off of arachnoboards and they've said publicly that they are shipping and I can think of a major dealer that ships this way. That is true. And obviously, we can argue about how likely it is that somebody gets busted for this until we're blue in the face. And this is a topic that I will definitely be covering covering later on in more depth because I have some things I'd like to say about it. However, what's come up is the fact that I have promoted through Tom's Big Spiders many dealers over the years and a couple I really put my all behind because they have been absolutely fantastic to me. 
great service, great communication. They've helped me out. And unfortunately, uh, one of the dealers I've worked with quite a bit and been promoting quite a bit ships using United States Postal Service. Now, to be clear, when I first started ordering, I had no idea this was illegal, and this is where the problem arises. When I first saw, I was looking online for places to order from. I saw the shipping was a little bit cheaper. I had no idea that it was illegal to ship through the United States Postal Service. And you know what? I probably should have looked that up and did more research. But when you see somebody blatantly, you know, online, it's here it is. We ship this United States Postal Service. You would assume that a business that big, if it was an issue, would be shut down by the federal government, basically. So I ordered for quite a few years before I found out after talking to my dad, who's worked in the Postal Service and somebody else, that it was in fact illegal. So I stopped doing it. However, what has been brought to my attention, which I feel absolutely terrible about, is that some people will go on my site, see who I recommend, buy from these people, and never think in a million years that Tom Moran would recommend somebody that is shipping illegally. And that bothers me a lot. I never even considered it. I was thinking more about who's going to take care of these people that are new to the hobby, who's going to answer their questions, who's going to give them a good experience. That's all I was thinking of. I forgot to revisit this after I learned that it was legal and mentioned that. And that bothers me a great deal. So it came up, it's come up on some, apparently some Facebook groups. It's come up on the Tarantula YouTubers Facebook groups. The fact that people are buying these and don't know the difference. Now, if somebody chooses to ignore this and order anyway, it's fine. That's completely on you. I'm not going to sit there and admonish you for it. Uh, shipping can be expensive. I understand why people do it and take the chance. And I also understand how people might be looking at this and thinking, God, the state of the U.S. Post Office, they're losing so much money right now. They probably strategically turn a blind eye to a lot of this. And I can tell you, my post office, I had gotten things in the past and said, yeah, it's tarantula. Nobody batted an eyelash at it. They didn't care. I have a funny feeling that the uh, the individual that is shipping these, and I will just say I know that this individual that uses this, I've spoken about this in depth with that person, and they have some great arguments as to why this is ridiculous, and I agree to a point. Someday I hope the hobby gets big enough that we can fight for things like this and tell people these aren't monsters, they're not going to kill you, that we should be able to ship them. You can ship scorpions legally as long as I believe they're using being used for medical purposes, and some of those can really put a hurting on you much more than many of the species of tarantulas. And I believe there was a case where somebody pushed it and said this should be completely limited to old worlds and if they're worried about the venom. But the basically the argument came down to they're not going to bother figuring out whether it's an old world or a new world and the law still stands. So as it, stay, it stands right now, it is illegal to ship U.S. Postal Service. Uh, again, going back to it, the person that does this has contacted lawyers, has contacted Fish and Game, has contacted people in the federal government, gets many mixed messages, and obviously has been very vocal about this, so should be on their radar and has not been busted. But there have been instances of people who have had things shipped, U.S. Post Office, and when they disclose what it is, that can get them into trouble. So Buddy Dave over Erie Arachnids. It, uh, had a situation where they asked what he shipped and he said a tarantula and they told him flat out that's illegal don't do it again so that could be some scary stuff did he get busted no technically he didn't get arrested or anything like that but they definitely admonished him for it and i believe checked packages after the fact so that's what you are 
That's what you're opening yourself up to. Not only fines, not only being arrested. Uh, again, it doesn't, although the U.S. government doesn't seem to be actively pursuing this right now, and obviously the first place they could start off with is the people shipping them. One never knows when somebody is going to, get some clerk or something's going to go, oh, there's a transfer call the main office, and it turns into a big deal. So this is coming from me, Tom Graham from Thomas Big Spiders. If you ship using the U.S. Post Office, whether it be on floor classifieds or people that ship that way, um, Arachnoboards, you'll see people shipping that way. Um, obviously, a, a big dealer ships that way. Do not, if you choose that option, you're doing something illegal. I would advise you not pay a little extra money, do it the right way. Little note, though, for folks, if you're shipping FedEx, FedEx is basically the go-to for this hobby for shipping tarantulas right now. But you need to be aware that it is against their policy. So what that means is if you get caught shipping tarantulas through FedEx, you're not breaking a federal law. You are breaking the terms of their service, however, and things can get icky for you that way. And if I'm not mistaken, FedEx says you're supposed to label when you're shipping something live. So technically, you should be putting tarantula on the side, which would make your package against FedEx policy, and they shouldn't ship it, or you could get in trouble for it. So just keep that in mind. you got to be careful there, too. I'm not going to encourage somebody to break company rules, as I don't want to encourage people to break laws, but that is why people go with FedEx. And I do believe FedEx turns a blind eye to it in many instances. That's a big source of their business right now. It's sad because whoever would pick up the torture if the U.S. Post Office would re-examine this and open it up, they'd probably be making quite a bit of money for people that want to save a little bit of money from FedEx. But keep that in mind now. I believe Delta Dash, I want to say, is the only one that allows you to ship legally. I could be wrong on that one. I will double check. But there is one service that does it, but it is very, very pricey and can be difficult finding places to ship to. So to encapsulate on this one, for anyone who has been ordering and didn't, you know, have been going by my recommendations and feels like they have ordered something and have unwittingly broken the law because of it, I my heartfelt apologies. Please know I don't, I didn't have to do this. I've gone through my website and tweaked a lot of things. I've taken some things off of it now because I can no longer endorse places, unfortunately, that do this as much as I think they are fantastic people. Hopefully, they'll turn around and put a disclaimer on their site. I know the uh, individuals I'm thinking of actually do ship FedEx. You can ask for FedEx shipping, and that's something I would encourage people to do if you order from there. But anybody that ordered and feels like they broke the law, again, I do apologize, but I want everybody to be fully aware. I got a funny feeling the comments section is going to blow up beneath this one. Fully aware of the fact that if you ship scorpions, not for medical purposes, and tarantulas through the United States Postal Service, you are breaking the law. And although they haven't been really busting up, cracking down on people, you could open yourself up for a lot in a lot of nastiness if they choose to make an example of you. All right, that'll about do it for this one. I will revisit the shipping topic in much more detail because I'm actually doing some research too to find out what the deal is behind the scenes and, you know, seeing if there's any way in the future, maybe if the hobby bands together, this could be something we change. I know a lot of people talk about this is illegal, this is bad, this is going to destroy the hobby. I really think that's alarmist bullcrap. I don't think it's going to destroy the hobby if one person gets caught. It may make them a little more cognizant. If they decide to come down on it, they're going to come down on anybody that's shipping that way. But I don't think the U.S. is so disorganized right now. The idea of everything going on that somebody's going to go, oh my god, these people have been shipping tarantulas. Let's ban tarantulas. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And Granted, crazier things have happened in our country this year, at least the United States I'm talking about. So who knows? But I really think that that's alarmist, but I do think it is something we should examine in the future. So with that said, thanks so much for listening. Again, if you want to comment on this one, please 
head over to my Facebook page where you can comment beneath. I usually post links to the actual podcast and gives people a place to uh, comment or ask questions. Um, check out my YouTube channel at Tom's Big Spiders or check out Tom'sBigSpiders.com for information. Again, thanks so much for joining me on these podcasts. I really appreciate you inviting me into your home, your car, or inviting me into your area while you're feeding your tarantulas. That's pretty cool. Thanks again for listening.